So uh, basically, I'm uh, in August launching a new show. It's going to be called very inventively the Michael Brooks Show. Wow, uh, how long yeah. did that take you to come up? With? You know, exactly, a really long time <laughs> because first you go through like a million like, like oh like Ron. yeah, and none of them work, and then at a certain point in like a state of exhaustion and trying to like come up with like clever inversions of like vibes cartel songs you're just like michael brooks show i i, I can't <laughs> lie man i'm a sucker for nation of islam obama <laughs> me too <laughs> the arc of history <laughs> bends towards sharia <laughs> yes. yes 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 sign me up for that please <laughs> what problem would you everything you're building here right now right do you want the government to tell you how to do all these things and all the regulations that you got to have your electric thing this far from this and like all of the, the regulations like that for construction are important though. You do have to make sure that people don't do stupid shit. But, make but sure generally, you don't have a power lines near a water line. You, you, there's a lot of. But I would put most of that on the builders though. They want to build things that are good. Now I get. Oh, I get, that's not true. Listen, people. No, cut, no, people are going to build corners all the time. Like you have to have regulations when it comes to construction methods, they, or people are going to get fucked. They cut regulate. They cut corners when there are regulations anyway. They do. They would cut a lot more if there weren't regulations. I'm not totally. You go to third world countries and look at construction methods. They're fucking dangerous. Yeah. That's why schools collapse on kids in foreign countries sometimes. You know, it's so silly to even, unfortunately, to have to talk about these little nonsensical things. Because I, I, I like talking about ideas, not about people. I can't. I, never I can't. Asked for more money. I can't. That's number one. I let. I told them. I can't believe. He must not watch the critics, right? Because. If someone calls me out, rightfully so, for using some lame, tired argument, then I would be hyper aware of it and I wouldn't use that argument anymore. But he's still doing it. He's still saying ideas. I just want to talk about ideas. What are your ideas? I want to know what his ideas are. Uh, well, I can't. My brain is still in recovery mode from taking in so many high level important ideas. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you got me. Get this again. Come on. Come on. Go. I have to say that my brain is still in recovery mode from taking in so many high-level important ideas. When, when did he say that? Was that recent? Uh, that was... High-level important ideas. It was within the last year, and it was referring to a live event he did with the uh, Brett and Eric Weinstein. <laughs> That's such an incredible concept. Nothing to worry about at all. Just relax. Just relax, Dave. Just ideas. Just ideas. Just rational just, thought. Just rational thought, just Dave. Think rationally. Think rationally. Ooh. Mean feminists on college campuses not thinking rationally. He's sitting there in complete boredom, just like, yeah, well, you know, there was Jacob Javits and there was moderates and there was Jesus Christ, he's a nice kid, but he's not the brightest. <laughs> and all of a sudden. Wait, the angels got Hernandez. This <laughs> <laughs> is your opinion on Brazilian Prime Minister uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro uh, regarding. <laughs> can you can you just play that again? Can we just do that again? This is your opinion on Brazilian Prime Minister uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro uh, regarding? <laughs> There's a lot of things moving here. Bus your opinion on Brazilian Prime Minister uh, Bolsonaro? 
Bolsonaro. <laughs> he's, <laughs> so he's, so he, see, it's pretty good. <laughs> All right, this is Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, I'm here uh, joined by a whole cast of collaborators, of course, as always, John Ross, J. Andrew World, and uh, we have we have Kenzo, and we have Karthik, and uh, hopefully uh, Varn will be joining us at some point. I don't, uh, he might have fallen asleep again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, I mean, I said what time we were going to be doing this, but it's all right. Um, so yeah, I wanted to start with that uh, series of Michael Michael clips. Um, I kind of I kind of feel bad that those are all the first ones because uh, you know the last couple months that that he was doing TMBS, he really wanted to move away from like doing as much uh, dunking as, as as he was doing because he was feeling a lot more spiritual and empathetic, and he felt like maybe that was a dead end. And now that he had written the you know against the web book, um, that maybe it was time to start moving towards uh, you know a lot more like a lot more healing and like, you know, empathetic and, and, and solidaristic content, but God damn it. So, you know, his dunking is classic. <laughs> it is. Um, so I don't know. Do you, do any of you guys have any thoughts on, on, on anything with, uh, with Michael and, and TMBS and really just how, like, you know, what, what, uh, a big impact Michael and that show have really had on everything. I feel like, um, you know, from, from the, from the day he, uh, he, he started it, but like, you know, I mean, especially since his passing, it seems like the show splintered off into so many different things. And like, like, I know like Andy and I wouldn't have, like be working on GTAA if it wasn't for, um, if, it, if it wasn't for, you know, uh, Ben deciding that M Michael had pushed him towards that and he, he followed through on it and like left reckoning obviously exists because of it. And, uh, really just everything Jacobin's done, um, you know, as, as in the form of video content, I mean, has been, because Michael was pushing Boshkar um, towards towards making video content, which is something that he wouldn't have necessarily done. There was, you know, there's barely any uh, followers on like the Jacobin um, YouTube, the Jacobin YouTube uh, um, uh, channel. Like I, I remember, I remember when I when Michael first asked if I wanted to work doing editing on it. Um, the uh, I was looking at it before before they had done any weekends content, and there was like I don't know, like thirty, like maybe like thirty, like or a hundred like subscribers and they were only posting like long videos of uh lectures that had like taken place a different <laughs> like it wasn't any like it wasn't content and it definitely wasn't shows so it really feels like you know the, the entire left media sphere at least you know the, the good the good ones like not the you know jimmy door type bullshit um <laughs> well even so like there's there's even like one or two i i don't necessarily care for that much that the, the you know the people that uh, started it were so inspired by by Michael's friendship and, and TMBS that they started you know so it's really splintered off in all these different directions and and I, I you know someone you really have to pay so much tribute to um, in, in any of these spaces. Yeah, I think with Michael, uh, especially towards the end of uh, the content that he was creating, he was forcing us all to like step up our game. And I think that's when those distinctions were made between the Jimmy Doors of the world and what, you know, I hope I'm part of, which is not that, but like, you know, Michael was really into <laughs> elevating what we were doing to like, to the point of pro like professionalism um, and being very accountable to his audience um, to, yeah, to make us like really dig deeper in our questions and not just, you know, have on people to dunk later. 
Uh, but like he had that nice balance too, where he'd have some fun episodes. He'd have someone on like Stavros Halkius and, you know, be very funny and actually have a good political conversation with him. And I think that, you know, that is a good model for us now where we're living in this time where I'm not going to, I'm not going to say the phrase, but you know, if you're seen around certain people, other people get a moral panic around it. And Michael didn't seem to care. Um, but also he wasn't a dick about it either. He's just yeah. like, I'm going to have these people on, we're going to have interesting conversations. If you have a problem with it, I'm just going to kind of ignore you. And it was, like, really, it was really whatever. I mean, if he respected their work. Yes. He, you know what I mean? Like, like, cause you know, he had uh, Glenn Greenwald on as much as he did. And Glenn Greenwald, I think blurred his book and everything. Like they were, they were close friends because you know, the whole uh, Lula and, and, and Brazil issue was so close to his heart, which Glenn Greenwald really, uh did did some amazing um you know did some amazing reporting on and and i don't think that those stories would have been uncovered without yeah. him um you know uh, in terms of uh um you know operation car wash and everything um being outed as like a you know a state uh like a, like a u.s state uh you know operation that was um you know with the bolsonaro government so i it, it's it, it feels like um i don't know i i guess i'd wonder uh I'd wonder how, how long everyone would like, it feels like the left really fractured as soon as Bernie dropped out and we had a goal that we were all working towards and whatever, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, work, um, I don't know. It all, it all kind of stopped. And then obviously the incentives take it, take account, which is like the, the media, uh, any, any kind of media, um, uh, you know, incentivizes, um, this like personality clash on social mm. media and, Sorry, I'm messaging Var and Link at the same time, so I was trying to do that while I was talking. But so that that's you know it's incentivized by these, these uh, personality clashes, which don't actually matter for politics. But you know, it, it, suddenly as soon as Bernie drops out and everyone's not working towards the same goal or working towards a goal, um, even if even if ideally they are, it, it starts being like this career ladder that people have to like fight for this space because they, they no longer see it as like a circuit that they go on each other's shows. And really have that goal they start seeing it as competition the same way the rest of the yeah. media is. and it's really sad to see that and i know michael was trying to fight against that by really like building building an apparatus that everybody was you know working towards and i remember feeling so uh uh so good about like working with him because it felt like it wasn't something tearing other people down it was something building so many people up you know it's it's cool that uh you have the this is a revolution hat on because uh, I have to say that that's like that show um, is probably uh, that and Kenzo's show uh, are two shows that I think are like kind of, uh, I mean, of course, there's uh, the uh, give them an argument that's uh, that's come out, you know, in in uh, kind of the place of the Michael Brooks show after Michael Brooks show ended. Uh, but I think one of the things that distinguished Michael from anybody else uh, was not only the international focus that he had but also how seriously he took the idea of political education, which is why I kind of gave a shout out to This Is Revolution, because like uh, both Pascal and Jason also care about the idea of political education and see that as the goal rather than anything else. Like it's not dunking, it's not, you know, having one over another person, but to actually inform the electorate about what's what's up or what whatever his perspective was, whatever he felt, uh, you know, he needed the people to know. Um, and he was very thorough about it. I felt like, and, uh, and and even like, I'm grateful to have had the chance to, you know, very briefly interact with him. And I read his book. Uh, I regret the fact that I never got to review it. Um, 
which uh, which is what basically got me to read the book in the first place. Uh, I wish that I had had the chance to you know uh, write something for a publication and had more people read it. Uh, but that book was, um, I think, the idea of cosmopolitan socialism that uh, he introduced as a, as an as a concept. I feel like it needs to catch on more. Uh, it has the potential to be something um, in American culture, in worldwide uh, culture as well, whatever form of international, you know, um, culture we might have. But yeah, uh, I definitely think that uh, he put forth ideas and. Uh, outlooks that I, I don't think um, anyone else kind of brought to the table. Yeah, and and really uh, created like this this. I mean, I want to I want to call it a circuit because you know it, it's that's kind of what it is. Like all of these media personalities that started going on each other's shows, and if you have something to promote, all of a sudden all these shows will have you on and uh, interview you about it. And I mean, you know, Michael was building it up just as like Chapo was kind of building it up. I mean, a little more controversially, but like you know, I, just. Shows like that majority report, which Michael had like a really big hand, obviously, in booking people that he respected. Like, so it's it suddenly, suddenly, it wasn't just like you release something and like maybe Jackman write about it or something, and and like you know, and and like maybe somebody on Twitter would write about it. Like suddenly, the, the same way like establishment media has, there was suddenly a circuit that you could really like promote your work on, and and people could promote themselves, promote each other in a way that didn't like set up a, a, a careerist competition. Like, yeah, clout mutual aid. Yeah. <laughs> Byron, do you have anything to, to, to say about Michael? Your, your, mic, your mic is uh, not connected. You're, you're muted. Well, while he's doing that, I'm just going to say, uh, without Michael, nobody is here to remind me that, um, uh, that, that I shouldn't be drawing cartoons of uh, Richard Wolf decapitating uh, David Griscom. <laughs> <laughs> you remember... Remember the video someone said in that it was a Goodfellas, um, Goodfellas clip. I think or no, the casino clip. Casino clip yes. with uh, Joe yes. Pesci and the pen, and he was he made that with uh with with David Griscom and uh, David Harvey and so and uh, Richard Wolf, <laughs> both beating the shit out of David Griscom. <laughs> <laughs> oh poor David. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess I'll I'll take my turn. Um, you know, reading Michael's book um, a year, uh, yeah, a year, year ago, kind of pushed me much further, further to the left than I already was. Um, I consider myself a dem sock in training, uh, democratic socialist in training. So, I I owe a lot of that to Michael and to the circle of people like the Majority Report, uh, Chapo, Ben. Uh, you know, for kind of being able to listen rather than just be like dismissive as some moderate liberals would do. So I, yeah. so I owe a real big debt of gratitude to MJB, as I call him. Uh, wherever he is, we miss him. Um, no, you're still, you're still muted. I, there was really, there's a strain of, uh, I guess Michael's, <laughs> what I'd call spirituality and, uh, you know, like, like almost like hippie, hippie empathy, uh, hip, like hippie spirituality that he kind of was cultivating towards the end that um, aligns really well with like what I grew up around because, you know, my parents, like, or at least my dad meditates constantly. Like he goes to meditation retreats. Um, you know, when I was a kid, like my, my parents were into like, you know, Eastern religion in general. Like my grandfather was really into learning about every religion. Like he literally had a crazy like religious library where he had like religious texts from 
I think he, I think he probably was trying to like fill a almost like fill a void, but like he ended up just like becoming like a person who, who knew things endlessly about pretty much every religion you can possibly think of. So having Michael, uh, you know, uh, when when the left is really, I mean, in the U.S. at least, like very uh, atheist oriented, because you know I think a lot of the a lot of people that are intelligent um, realize that religion can be used for very bad purposes, and there's a lot of atheism that kind of uh, follows with that. So the the fact that Michael was bringing a different uh, perspective, with you know, I mean, and he he really he looked up to Marianne Williamson a lot, which. I mean, my, my mom, my mom was like a huge Marianne Williamson fan when she was writing those books originally, like before she even turned to the left. So there was like a very uh, organic feeling, I think, um, very organic feeling spirituality that that kind of Michael brought with him that I didn't really see anywhere else. I uh, Jamie Peck was on my show a couple nights ago and uh, we were talking about Bolsonaro. And never, never DM me back after she said that she would do the Harmony Corinth thing with you. Oh, it'll happen. We'll make it happen eventually. There's there's tons of content to make, but uh, you know he was you know Michael being so into Jewish mysticism. We were joking that maybe he has something to do with the shit being uh, rerouted through Bolsonaro's body right now, in you know some sort of like cosmic justice. Um, he's he's still here with us, you know, making shit come out of Bolsonaro's nose. <laughs> he's, I, uh, he, his ghost is is probably through Bolsonaro. My 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 theory, my theory was that like you know you have like a lot of people right now talking about like lab leak theory, and you have a lot of people talking about like the wet market theory, whatever. Like my theory is that uh, COVID grew originally in spores within Bolsonaro. <laughs> so also, like the only reason COVID exists is because like it, it just it, it somehow jumped from like you know where it came from to Bolsonaro, and then he cultivated it long enough that it was like you know it, it could it could. Uh, move to humans from that <laughs> he is human body horror <laughs> like you know if you ever do reanimator we could like tie that into what's happening to bolsonaro right now <laughs> you know, to, pick up, to pick up on the michael thing though a, a bit because everybody's been talking about the circuit he built and the community he built but it's who he would bring in people from the community that you wouldn't think would would get along i mean um actually michael and i's politics are not opposed in any way, but um, I had harsh things to say about Bernie at a time. He didn't really want to hear it. Um, and he still went on my show uh, very early on when there wasn't where actually he was helping me more than I was helping him. Um, and he went on an even smaller show ran by a friend of mine for the same reason to to establish links between people. And, and th those links cultivated in a conference where Michael, I, Ben, uh, Ben Burgess and all met together. And basically two or three books came out of that conference. Nice. Um, the one where the one where Doug Lane was extremely <coughs> upset that uh, Jordan Peterson had spurned his debate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah th that's uh, the one where, where Ben Burgess and Michael's meet cute happened where my name is on the board. Yeah, actually it is. Um, so, and I, you know, um, um, because of that, I met Richard Wolf. I mean, my circle uh, expanded greatly um, and he didn't have to do that. Um, you know, like I said, like I was, I was kind of an obnoxious left com that most people know from the internet. And he, he, he thought the voice, the criticism was necessary to hear for a lot of people in his orbit, particularly in relation to international issues, which we were both interested in. 
So he did a lot in that regard. And um, I never stopped respecting him for it because he, he did. He also would, as was mentioned, he would keep people together and shield people from attack. And he didn't do the left beef war or the, you know, the left culture war slash basically rap beefs that we do now. Yeah. It, he, he avoided that um, ast like astutely and um, Jason Miles from This Is Revolution has, and Pascal Robert have both said that that's also part of the model why they don't do that. You know, it's, it's open. Yeah, they have, a, they have a different way of starting shit than, than that. <laughs> <laughs> did you see the episode uh, Pascal did with Ben when Ben's book first came out? Yeah. Um, and he was just like giving him a really hard time on, on like the ideological labels. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it. Um, uh, yeah, he he did to Ben what I normally do to Doug Lane. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, another another uh, person that came out of um, like literally came out of TMBS is obviously Brianna Joy Gray, who now kind of I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not always I don't always agree with what she says, but um, she had Pascal on recently and like. So it, it kind of feels like that's almost like another uh, another line between you know like on the on the on the chart I guess of, of what Michael's really managed to do. I I really like I felt like I started out as like TMBS's editor, like that was like the first edit like real editing job I had. But like I became like Michael's editor. Like it, it became more than just because all of a sudden I wasn't just doing like TMBS. I was like Michael would go do like an interview somewhere or something or like he'd be part of something like. He, he got me the job doing uh, weekends when I was doing that. Like, like, so it, it, it started feeling like Michael was bringing me along to all of these other projects and mm -hmm. was really like encouraging me. And it felt like almost like a, like a squire, like a squire in, uh, in like the old, the old King Arthur days where you, that's you, a really I, intimate relationship. Like, you know, with, I tell you, like with my producers, they can anticipate what I'm going to say. Um, like, and they, and beyond that, like they can like, because I'm in their ear for hours, um, you know, they really understand me in a level that I think some of my friends might not even. Um, so like you having that connection with Michael, that's really awesome. I, yeah. I think too, Michael was trying, uh, you know, was like beginning to groom me. Uh, that sounds so weird. <laughs> there's a joke i want to make that i won't make you're, you're older than him though so yeah which is okay. weird like why is he grooming me he kept saying hey you want to facetime at 4 a.m and it, just, it, it got weird i don't <laughs> but, but no like, like as as to be his his uh kind of squire artist in a way like another another tool in his quiver of um uh trick arrows because I mixed metaphors there and uh, <laughs> we're going with green arrow. <laughs> you really did such a good job with that book cover too. Oh, um, yeah, you did. And it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing, like, it, and it's so intricate. There's just so many characters like involved in it. Uh, I just love that. I got uh, Jordan Peterson staring lovingly at a lobster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, just eat the, just, just eat this lobster real quick. And do you remember, do you remember Michael's bit where he did the high, he did, he did high pitched George Peterson? Um, and he was before before that one video that came out that was like think of all the cash. He did like a he did Jordan Peterson, but he was like dollar dollar bills, y'all. That was still the most <laughs> Michael bit out of out of every everything I've and I've seen. I saw way too many Michael bits because I did the two impressions compilations for him. So like I. That took months, and like Michael had a lot of like 
revisions that he was like, I don't think we've like hit the mark here yet. Like, and then wouldn't give me like notes on what he wanted on. He's like, listen, impressions. And I'd be like, all right. And he's like, listen, impressions, just, just do the impression. So it, I think it was the first one took like three months of me sending stuff back and forth to Michael. And then finally it came out and I was really, like, I'm still really proud of it. The second one, now that Michael knew that that was like really popular, he was just like, all right, run with it. <laughs> um, I guess, so let's get started on uh, Repo Man, unless anyone has any, anything else to say. And there's there's a new way that I like that I like doing this. Um, and, I, and I stole May it. May I say from, something uh, real quick? Oh, yeah. My, uh, my, my last favorite uh, Michael uh, memory was on the Majority Report, uh, some guy, some caller called in pretending to be Jordan Peterson and made the whole freaking crew laugh. And Michael laughed so hard that that impressionist was like, and you stop laughing. Clean your room, Michael. I'm your father. I'm your father. Who's your daddy, you effing cultural Marxist? And it's just like, it made me laugh so hard. I never laughed really so hard in my life. The other one that was really funny that happened towards the end was, uh, remember Dave from Jamaica? Who used to call yeah. in all the time? So he did Dave Rubin from Jamaica. <laughs> so he called it, and he didn't do a voice. He just said, it's me, Dave Rubin <laughs> from Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Michael going from Jamaica. Like he was like he was like laughing so hard that he did the thing where his voice gets really high pitch. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was yeah. It was it was an amazing. Uh, there's so much about that show that was amazing, and, and really so much has come out of it that's amazing. Like I, nothing could make you nothing could really make you feel like all right. Like I have not done enough research on any of these like international issues whatsoever. And then at the same time, make you laugh over like Dave Rubin saying something dumb. And then five seconds later, like within the same bit, the other one was uh, Bill Maher, like pro Maduro Bill Maher was one that I thought was. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, he's helped the economy. Okay. And I was, <laughs> I don't know. I just, there's just so, there's so many bits that he did that were amazing. That were, that like, even the ones that didn't make, like a lot of them didn't make the, the, uh, like even uh like like a dent in the way that you know they were reviewed like compared to other things. So I was the person in charge of analytics, so like I would look at what videos were doing the best. So like some of his bits that I thought were like the most amazing ones that he ever did, like were kind of just passed over, and I was like, mm -hmm. damn. Um, so hold on, I'm about to get the the Repo Man trailer. Um, Andy, do you want to introduce Repo Man as a as a uh, as a movie really quick? Sure, yeah, this is kind of a sequel to uh, two separate uh, streams that we've done recently. Uh, one on my stream on Bad Takes and, and uh, the, uh, the very first episode right here on Movie Night Extravaganza. Repo Man is a 1984 cult classic with the great um, Emilio Estevez starring in it with uh, a, a tons of just phenomenal actors that you know their faces but not necessarily their names. And uh, it's it's a oddly funny and surreal movie and it picks up exactly where the first movie we watched on this channel left off um if you if you watched uh you know uh kiss me deadly it's kind of a spiritual sequel to that but it was also produced by mike nesmith and the same production company that gave us tape heads which uh Forrest was on a stream of mine recently about that so there's a certain uh je ne sais quoi that kind of recent uh rec recent viewings of uh films that that's uh a follow-up to a four Meet Otto. He's a clean cut. I guess you're not ready. <laughs> in a dirty business. He repossesses cars. He's a repo man. 
You gonna give me my car back or do I gotta go to your house and shove your dog's head down the toilet? His mission <laughs> is to repossess a 64 Chevy, but hidden within its trunk. What you got in the trunk? You don't wanna look in there. Is the most important discovery in the history of our planet. Repo Man. It's a mystery. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation. It's a comedy. What are you doing? Don't do that. It's a chase. It's the forces of law. Marlene, I'm on my coffee break. Against the representatives of discontented youth. Against the finest minds in government. I had a lobotomy in the end. Lobotomy? Isn't that for loonies? Not at all. And they're all in pursuit of a 64 Chevy Malibu from who knows where. Wow, eyes melts can explode. Everybody dead. Repo Man. The story of the ultimate repossession. Repo Man. Not just a job, it's an adventure. Yeah, that, that trailer made sense in the way that Repo Man, when you actually watched it, did not. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, it, it, it actually strung the narrative together way more than it's actually strung <laughs> together. And it set the jokes up, which Repo Man very much did not do. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I, was, I was watching it, and the dialogue seems seemed very very stilted and i was like there's something like, there's something that i want to say about this like but i can't like quite put my finger on what and then they're sitting in the car and he said uh you gotta wake up at three in the morning four in the morning this is why every repo man i know is on speed and i was like okay that's it this one this one as someone with adhd that's what i wanted to say about it mm. This movie does about 85 things at once, and so it's it's kind of hard to zoom in on. Um, like like somebody on speed, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody um, on heroin. No, someone on heroin does zero things, or maybe negative oh. things. Yeah. <laughs> but someone you know, I was, could be doing 80 things. <laughs> I was going to say that it's it's literally a, uh, the, the last movie uh, Andrew introduced uh, this movie as like a sort of spiritual sequel to Kiss Me Deadly mm -hmm. and Kiss Me Deadly kind of like had this box as a sort of stairway to heaven and we talked about that uh, the last time this time it's like it's what it's, it's, <laughs> yeah and it's and it's literally a stairway to heaven this time they actually you know and and they reveal it in the trailer which is what's so surprising like that's the ending of the movie so uh, how there was that that scene where they were like they, they were going through like the deindustrialized thing of the car like spun out. I was thinking about uh when Zizak made the uh he made the, the the film he made the the movies about like uh a, a whatever a pervert's guide to film. So I was thinking about that, which is something that I think Russell's going to come on at some point soon, and we're going to watch uh, a pervert's guide to film and talk about it with him because he's somebody that is very close friends with Zizak. But I was just thinking about like uh that movie like. That, that, those movies like that and like the, the purpose guide to ideology how Zizek just kind of walks out in the middle of it and is like ideology so i was thinking like it'd be really funny if he had walked out and it'd be like i kind of chase what does it tell us about the ideology of this movie well let me tell you like the mechanic is kind of the zizek of, of this film where just yeah. he'll have this you know imagine a plate of shrimp and then someone you know say that in zizek's voice 
I, I do imagine, a terrible imagine a plate of, imagine a plate of fish. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it just it's spot on. Like and the thing about this film is uh what's amazing about it is initially Alex Cox wanted to just make this as an indie film with his mm -hmm. buddies. And so like that's I think the reason why he's like, I can make this the craziest, wildest shit you know imaginable. It got picked up uh by a major studio and they're like you can keep your friends in it, but the major actors are going to be Harry Dean Stanton, uh, Emilio Estevez. And so like you have these real ass punk rockers in the background with speaking roles, like featured extras mm -hmm. amidst like these Hollywood actors. And it yeah. creates so much. I feel like, you know, it, the, the feel of the film. The deliberately stilted dialogue and getting good actors to act like they don't really know how to act is mm -hmm. kind of brilliant, particularly when you pair them with, 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 with basically, you know, a kind of a step above amateur actors. Um, <laughs> and it's, it creates a, like both an authenticity, uh, authenticity and a complete, like, what am I watching exactly mm -hmm. at any moment of the film? It's also interesting that you know a lot of these punk rock movies could they could take a very right wing ethos and some of them frankly do later on, but we know that the kind, that, of, uh, kind of right wing we talked about with Passive Glory, I think, which right, yeah, yeah. I mean a kind of a, a kind of conservative nihilism, mm -hmm. um, but we know we know with Alan Cox that isn't what he's aiming for because we know his later movies. I mean, particularly Walker, which is about. American imperialism and and uh, like the other insanity that is that is the establishment of capitalism in Latin America. So I have a for the end of this, I have an interview with him where he talks about um, his his film career. There's a uh, he did a thing called Cinema Rebel, like that was the name mm. of the interview that he did. So I, I wanted to play that because I sent it to Kenzel the other day, and he, he even goes into like the whole uh, Trump because I think it was right, it was around 2016, and he was talking about like. The Trump Clinton uh, dichotomy, like really interesting thing to like have like a, a current uh, a current iteration of his ideology like spelled out. Yeah, I think what what I think is so fascinating about it though is this movie. If you if you were to read it, you, you, there's so many lines that are heading in a in a way that we would use in modern parlance to say problematic, and then the, and then the movie will undercut it immediately. Mm -hmm. um, because, but it won't let you know until the moment it undercuts it um, that it's aware of how reactionary it's being. Um, what, I, an example of that would the, be the one. The one that I uh, comes up to the, the, the top of my mind first is when he says, uh, "He goes, what are you a commie? I don't want any commies in my car." <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton pauses for a second and says, "Christians either." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's that. It's that kind of. It's, it's that, that, that like kind of thing. In there. <laughs> Um, there's also there's also one where they where they seems like they're going to go on a bunch of homophobic rants and they kind of start to, and then they mock it at the at like the exact same time they do it, um, and so it's the tone of this movie is is wild. I mean, like it's also aware of its com of its commerciality, mm -hmm. like. You look in the background and you have everything's replaced with white labels as a statement about product placement. So, like, yeah. they literally go through and replace every single label on everything so that there is no product placement even accidentally in the movie. Yeah. And, that, and, like, they, even, and they even make sure that you know that when he goes, let's go get a drink. And then literally the thing says drink on it, which... <laughs> 
was laughing my ass. Yeah, not even beer or soda, just drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said, "Let's go get a drink." Like, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, the, it's like a perfect. Uh, it's like a perfect line without being like a like an airplane style satirical like whatever like you know what i mean it's a perfect like statement on commerciality the other one is when he said uh some friends you have and he says thanks i made them myself (laughs) (laughs) which is just such an awkward fucking line to like put in there but like since it's i don't know what the, the thing that i i guess i feel like um most about this movie and we kind of started to talk about this in, in the group that we excluded Varn from. Um, no, but it was, uh, <laughs> I, I think the reason that, that it was just that, that you were not in it was because it was the one for Kiss Me Deadly and then Kenzo bailed on us. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> um, so the, the, uh, the, the thing that I felt like the most is that the, the most, the, the closest corollary, I think, and, and I think that it takes a very different turn. The closest corollary director in the eighties to, uh, to Alex Cox in this movie is Verhoeven, clearly, like clearly, like you know what yeah. I mean. And, Paul and, and and yeah, and much in the, and much in the same way that he makes his amateur friends act or has his amateur friends act, like you know, Verhoeven is 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 completely willing to make a, a bad movie with Starship Troopers is, is a great example Ooh. of it. That you know, if that movie had had failed on all levels, like like Chapel made this point when I was when we were getting ready for that, we we did like a like a crazy stream on Ben's show with where we watch Starship Troopers with like so many, so many random fucking people. Um, so we, we watched that and like Chapo had made the point when they did their like Lincoln Film Center screening that like, it's like, it's an act of daring because it does work and Verhoeven is confident in himself as a director for Starship Troopers. But if it hadn't worked, he still would have like, it still would have been an act of, of, of like, it still would have been a, an incredible act, I guess, of, of building something that, uh, or, or trying something that, like no other director would have tried. So I feel like in much the same way, um, Alex Cox as a as a punk director has even more, I guess, license to create something like this. I would say that I would say that Verhoeven is the 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 parallel with the with the exception that Verhoeven does one genre at a time, and this movie's like five. Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, there's there's a, there's another. I mean, you know, we were talking about the fact. Uh, Verhoeven originally got brought up by Kenzo because uh, I guess one of the people that they were thinking about to to direct RoboCop right after Repo Man came out was Alex Cox. So, oh wow, That's yeah, kind of, um, that would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. but but so, but whereas uh, that movie kind of tackles, kind of tackles uh, the, the entire thing is, and this is interesting. This is the fact, but everything is deindustrialized in in both movies. Like it's taking place in cities where everything has been completely deindustrialized, which is the you know which which when you look at like the Reagan years and, and privatization starts like that's kind of the like the, the only place that if you had taken that to its full limit, which I think in some ways we have, fully deindustrialized urban cities would have been like the, the first thing we experienced, mm-hmm. you know, and like we have in a lot of places, but like this movie kind of takes it to the level of so does RoboCop, where it's like entire neighborhoods are just vacant in in. Yeah. in in big urban cities and, 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 you know, it's street gangs are taking over and this movie kind of is obsessed with what's happening in Latin America at the same time with Reagan and, and, you know, has a really crazy understanding of that. Like they're constantly listening to stuff about like Guatemala and like all of the, like, like all of the things that, cause I was just listening to it again. And it's like, it's even on the radio when, when he's, uh, when he's sitting there like reading a, a the newspaper or whatever, like it's, 
it's obsession with like the contras which if if like it's is as if we had gotten the contras here like like a or like you know what i mean like we had gotten death squads here like groups of like street gangs running around from place to place just robbing things with impunity stealing things with impunity murdering with impunity so it's almost and and kind of a robocop does the same thing i think um it, it's like that environment but then obviously robocop creates pretty much reagan as a joke but like it's like reagan era jesus that comes and 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 is you know gunning people down which is a different thing but like this movie kind of doesn't uh, this movie has exactly the same, I think, lead up to it, and then there is no RoboCop. Right. Well, you know, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Kato. I'm talking a lot already. Oh yeah. Okay. So uh, maybe it's the fact that I recently watched A Quiet Place Part Two, um, and uh, you know, while I watched Quiet Place Part Two, the the ad for that uh, one of the trailers at the beginning was that of Top Gun, and uh, the first thing that came to mind was how uh, both of those movies, in fact, like Top Gun, the trailer itself, and A Quiet Place Part Two, both kind of seem almost like military recruitment uh, ads. And uh, well, everything, kind of something. Everything so, so, Krasinski does seems like a military recruitment ad. Yeah, and like, and and in, and in fact, like uh, this this ties back to something uh, that I, I I think Jason said uh, once about uh, Full Metal Jacket, or, or maybe you might have said this, that this uh, Forrest. Yeah, this is uh, or you might have said Forrest about uh, how like all of these anti-war movies end up becoming like kind of pro-war with the exception of I think you tweeted Parts of Glory uh, which I tend to agree with um, and I think that this movie kind of had this uh, arc of uh, like kind of these gangs of people who are not going anywhere in their lives and then finally like achieving some sort of purpose and then taking off in a sort of way which kind of like I wonder if that uh, kind of has these shades of uh, becoming more of a military recruitment uh, metaphor rather than some sort of like redemption or, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I liberation mean, I, or anything think, like that. I think in this case, it, there's just an obsession with Latin America for this movie in particular, because at multiple points in this movie, I noticed that they're listening to stuff about like Honduras, Guatemala, like th that's getting brought up a lot, which at the same time, obviously, like uh, Iran Contra is going on, like literally at the same time. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? Like those hearings are happening and there's a, there's a knowledge that Reagan is funding these death squads and that in Latin America, like literally for the last, and there's also like, like, I don't know, like less than a decade before that, the church, uh, the church committee hearings, like there's an understanding that, that we fund these, like these street gangs that run around in, in other countries. And I feel like what, what this movie and, and what Robocop does is like, it takes the idea that these street gangs are running these, but more of this movie than anything, like, uh, it, it kind of transfers it to our society. Like we have these people just running around with guns and there's just no, like, it's like a libertarian paradise. Oh, yeah. because, you know, cause, cause if yeah. you, if you're someone that's obsessed with yeah. making money, like a repo man would be, or you're obsessed with like getting the money that, you know what I mean? Like for, for literally taking someone's property or as, as Harry Dean Sam says, protecting like, it's like, Oh, I don't make, I make sure not to harm property. Like, <laughs> like you're, you're it's a hundred percent that you're kind of living in this weird like libertarian crime state but when you look at what reagan was doing in in all of these latin american countries it's literally the same thing like he's funding these crime states and like harry dean stanton is such a good representative of like just trusting the system like and believing mm -hmm. in the system like he didn't really assign moral value to the people that he uh you know repossessed cars from he just says you know they're just a poor hump 
who couldn't afford their, I forget exactly how he put it, but like couldn't afford their car payment. And, you know, it's our job to take the car. It's their, you know, it's the cop's job to do this. Like he just, he just lays it all out. And that's why he doesn't want communists or Christians because either way you're, you're putting, you know, you're questioning, you know, the integrity of the system to him. Uh, so I think that, you know, that was a great message there. Like that for the time, um, you know, deindustrialized America, what jobs were there other than, you know, working for a bank, taking shit from people who can't afford it, who've been, you know, had the American dream shoved down their throat that they had to, you know, buy a car they couldn't afford. And, you know, even beyond that, you know, in LA, you can't really get around on public transportation so well. So like, the car was important to people. Um, yeah. So you know, there's a there's a there's a moment in the movie that I wondered about, of uh, that I guess I want to hear you guys' uh, take on when he, when for the one second Emilio Estevez pretends to show like that moment of kindness uh, to that to the, to the, to the woman that um, you know to the to the black woman in that house and he says Mrs. Parks like was that supposed to be like society has uh, become so dystopic that he's literally like because she's like oh I finally got a car. And it seems like maybe possibly a, a wink to like Rosa Parks, uh, as like you know what I mean, and like the idea that like right. maybe they they'd even take her car after because it seemed like there was a weird moment where he's like Mrs. Parks, like I'm I've decided I'm not going to take your car, like, and she's sitting there and she's like nodding along and she's like thank you, thank you, and she's like I just she's he's like she's not he's not going to take the car that we just acquired, and I was wondering if that was like a Rosa Parks like society's. Uh, kind of gotten to the point where like even like Rosa Parks like is fair game for the repo men. Maybe I'm looking too much into it. I don't know. Well, I, I think if you're going to name a, a black character, Mrs. Parks in 1983, 1984, that's, yeah. that's, it's hard to not make the analogy. <laughs> I mean, that's only 20 years prior. Um, it's, you know, when I watched this movie, I remember it being explained to me as dystopian. And then I was like, but it, it is just it is just an exaggerated version of the, of 1982 1983 um in like we didn't forget this but it, there was actually like a, a like a kickback recession from the 70s recession going on in the early Reagan administration and there really weren't that many jobs um and the the beginning of stuff like televangelism so like when he walks into his parents to try to con him out of money and they've already been conned out of money at a much larger scale by the church um and yeah, by, like, by a televangelist by right? a televangelist church yeah. specifically not not like generic but specifically a televangelist church and you can just see him like he just has this look like well shit like you yeah. know like you know there's nothing he doesn't even really have a response. You expect him to be cruel because he kind of is most of the time, but it's just like, well, it's just the way it is. Um, yeah. Gonna have to get the money some other way. A, a corollary to, uh, I mean, obviously this movie came later, but Starship Troopers, where he's like, I want to go on, I want to go to Zagreb Beach, and his, you know, or he's like, he's like, I want to join the army. And I was like, you're going to Zagreb Beach or whatever. Like, so I don't know. I kind of felt like that was a. A funny connection because it wasn't because obviously that movie came out a decade later but like it was funny to see those two scenes together because he's like i, I Europe. i thought it was a really interesting choice that the parents they didn't make like um you know stodgy like evangelical looking types they were hippies yeah no they're, but they're like completely acid destroyed hippies which yes. sets you up <laughs> for later for later that like the the miller character is is kind of the same thing 
place. Like, mm-hmm. if you do too much acid, like, but but I think that well, I'll, I'll let you say what, what you're what you were gonna say about it. But I don't think it's necessarily that, that they're referencing evangelists. It's that people are people are so burned out at this point by the '60s, mm-hmm. I think, and like and and by that entire culture, which is something that it feels like Alex Cox is kind of steeped in. Uh, you know, like the 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 '80s version, I guess, of that culture. Like he's doing all these punk movies and stuff. Like it's kind of evolving into like a different thing, obviously. But like it's the counterculture. But he seems so. It seems like they've been so steeped in like getting burned out uh, by the '60s and like by acid and whatever else that like they're just unable to like they see something on TV and they're like, "Yeah, we're we're just gonna do that." Yeah, I, that's pretty much what I was thinking too. Like these are folks that were just carried away by whatever the trends were at the time. Um, but like carrying over the hippie style, uh, I thought was it was cool because it just showed how like these th- this is what happens like it's it's not necessarily like family ties where like hippies all become liberals some hippies drift off into the other space yeah <laughs> i mean they they kind of still aren't if you look at like who becomes who who can you predict is going to become QAnon? <laughs> if they have if they have like hippie past it's almost like a one-to-one bet you can flip a quarter you want to hear something very funny <laughs> yeah sure so there is a guy in my town that was is a slumlord that I lived at his his place. The the place he owns that I lived at was called the Groovy Blueberry. It was a store <laughs> that purely sold tie dye and like all of these like different like hippie stuff with crystals. But the guy is very much a reactionary Trump Republican. Uh, but like but you know like I think libertarian enough like he he sits outside of the apartment that we were living in as a fucking slumlord. Everything was falling apart upstairs, and he's like sitting outside smoking weed in front of his store. Uh, with, with like his buddies or whatever, like by, by the river, like bought the most, he's trying to sell it now for like $4 million or something. Like I, everybody in my town hates this guy, but this guy is like a hippie, he's like a hippie libertarian slumlord baron. Like that's literally what the guy's created for himself. Yeah. Like the QAnon shaman, like that is a type, yeah. that is a type of person now. Yeah. But this guy, I think goes even farther back. This guy has his roots <laughs> in like the, well, cause we were talking about this um, with the anti-war movement and Lorax was on. And the episode hasn't come out yet, so I guess spoilers for our episode. <laughs> but um, it's next Tuesday's episode because I'm not going to be around to do a. Um, I don't know. I just have other stuff to do, so I um, we're going to do the Pass the Glory one and, and debut it that week. Unless you want to go to Patreon.com/slash Movie Night Extra and uh, get it now. But <laughs> um, so we were talking about how the anti-war movement. One big way that they had failed is that you know uh, libertarians, for very different reasons, are anti-war and. They, they kind of created like this like new left libertarian uh hippie type and it's been covered so much in different things because they didn't they they like the new left i feel like and i was thinking about this this morning like the new left had given up so many of their principles like you know what i mean like number one we're in the cold war so like oh we need to differentiate ourselves even even like michael harrington we need to differ differentiate ourselves from communists like dsa started because of that and i'm i'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing but that was very much in in reaction to well yeah all right all right i see I'm, I'm just saying that was very much i i'm not i'm not passing any judgment either way i'm just saying that was very much in reaction to the cold war happening at the same time you know what i mean so like everybody like anyone that used the label socialist had to differentiate themselves from the ussr and at some point you'd given up so many of your principles as a leftist the only thing really left was i don't want to go to vietnam mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden libertarians were like i also don't want to go to vietnam for different reasons but like i don't want to go there 
and you've created like this hippie archetype of like a of like a free like I'm just free man like I don't really like there's no real principle to it there's no there's no anchor you know what I mean like it's, yeah. it's not like you're anchored in anti-capitalism you're anchored in aesthetics and you're anchored in like the idea that like oh we should just like all fuck pretty much it's it's basically the original red brown alliance it, yeah. it's what it's what the uh, the the boomers are all afraid of uh, is as you know the left uniting with us like. Motherfucker, we ain't doing that. That's what y'all did. You know, you know what's interesting about this, though, is you want to talk about countercultures. This, I mean, as much as Alice Cox clearly loves punk counterculture, he has a pretty strong critique of it as being like not only nihil, like nihilistic and hyper selfish, even like mm-hmm. even more selfish mm-hmm. than the hippie uh, movement. And I mean, I think about like the aesthetics of early punk in, in the UK and like. You know, in some ways, they were the original trolls. Like, they would go and break disco records, but they would also wear swastikas yeah. on their armbands, um, not even to identify as fascists, just to piss off um, people who fought in, in World War II. And, um, I mean, so, like, John Lydon's current politics, for example, don't surprise me as an extension of that. But it, it's, it does seem very much there's a continuity between you know, Emilio Estevez as a punk and Emilio Estevez's auto as a proto yuppie. Like there's, there's a continuity there too. And you know, yeah. it's not just like yeah. the hippies, the evangelicals. There's also like these punk guys can easily become nihilist and ties. Like, yeah. And, and that kind of, I mean, I know you don't necessarily like the term, but I was talking to Catherine Lou this morning, like this morning and <laughs> don't worry. I said, a lot of some people on the online left uh, feel that there's a Marcy critique where maybe the word clash shouldn't be used in the PMC. That was the first question that we talked about. <laughs> Don't worry about that. But no, but I, we were kind of talking about that. And in Virtue Hoarder, she very much draws that line between hippies like that, that like the counterculture and hippies and yuppies. Like it's it's the you know the, the PMC concept kind of um, that she's kind of defining is uh, a group of people who have combined those two ideas like they're willing they're willing to do the the work of, of yuppies that are above them but they also have like the same libertine uh expressions as as the hippies really did yeah i think that's interesting because i've been you know doing a lot of research in the early 20th century and that countercultural stuff being being like an like we could easily go ultra bourgeois um, while romanticizing the very lowest strata of society. That goes back to at least the 1920s, maybe even earlier in America. Um, so there's like a long history of that. But this movie's this movie's interesting in that it's aware of it at a very early time to be around. I mean, like Punk's not even a decade old when he's making this. So like you think about the earliest like self-conscious punk movements in the UK would have been middle seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we have to remind ourselves before the internet pop culture was slower. Um, well, so, it was uh, 76 when punk really started in England, because that was when um, the Ramones and uh, Johnny wow. Rockets and uh, the, the heartbreakers uh, toured uh, England. And that, that had like a major effect. In fact, um, uh, the bass player for uh, Johnny Rocket. No, not Johnny Rockets. I did it again. No, uh, jo- Johnny um, Thunders. Johnny yeah. Thunders. Yeah, Johnny Rockets is the uh, is, is the dagger. <laughs> but Johnny Thunders. Um, 
his bass player was uh, Richard Hell, who used to be mm. in television. And he was keeping his clothes together with clothespins, you know, with a, with a safety pins because they were just falling apart. And, and so, like, somebody in England was like, oh, it's brilliant, mate, and started, like, you know, uh, cutting up clothes and putting it together with uh, safety pins. So, so uh, I mean, really, like, like the punk movement is is taking, um, uh, in a way, is almost like poverty porn of, of Americans, uh, you know, because, because the, you know, punk began it here in this country. Yeah, but there was a there was a longer, at least in the UK, like the mod skinhead wars at the end of the the sixties, where yeah, yeah, I mean that's split, and it's people just beating the shit out of each other at like you know shows, like trying to stomp each other with boots. That I mean, that kind of very quickly turned into like the the the, the punk movement, I think, because they already kind of had this weird like back and forth uh, like battles going on with these with these two groups. So I think yeah. when when Alex Cox. Uh, creates these like you know groups of like brawling people on the street i think it has a much earlier thing than that and that kind of uh for like it reminds me of a kind of a, a clockwork orange um in some ways like that that subplot specifically is a lot like a clockwork orange especially when the one guy says like like oh you're afraid to go in the trunk and the other guy's like oh well you're out of the game that's clearly a reference i think to a clockwork orange which is coming out like in the 60s and has like these roving groups of street gangs now i think that the punk aspect of it obviously comes in later, but you know I, I don't think necessarily that the punk aesthetic is the most important part of that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's whole proto punk uh, which existed long before punk because I mean you know you had uh, uh, everything from the Velvets to the Monks to um, uh, you know uh, to Iggy Pop, uh, you know. And Iggy was on the soundtrack to this. Yeah, yeah that was like their big track. That was the, that was the big single off it. But what was interesting too about the selection on this soundtrack is like. You have, you know, uh, Fear, which is a right-wing punk band. I love them, but they are, you know, they, they will say that they're reactionaries. Uh, you have Suicidal Tendencies, which were like basically the Cholo street gang punk band of the time. Circle Jerk, political, Black Flag, political. But like, yeah, the interesting scene was when uh, they're in the, the lounge and the Circle Jerks are playing as a lounge act. And then Emilio Estevez is like, I used to like this band. I think that was a little, uh, a little dig into the sellout culture. <laughs> well, also the uh, the bass player of uh, the Circle Jerks is in the movie too. Remember, uh, he was uh, the uh, was it Kevin the Nerd? Yeah. Oh, I'm not I'm not playing this yet. I just wanted to. Um, I mean, oh. it, like this is this is Pop talking about how he ended up uh, being on the soundtrack to Repo Man. So I, I found this. Um, Cause Criterion Collection, I guess, has some great interviews. After we found out the other day about the Passa Glory ones, like they interviewed, like they, they did the deep cuts. I feel like, but uh, yeah, this is this is how that came about. I guess this is a movie that I understand why it got a Criterion Collection, but I wouldn't have predicted that it would get a Criterion Collection release because it's it's raw. Even even for an Alice Cox movie, I mean, if you see like Sid and Nancy or Walker or. Um, those, those movies are way are they're, they're particularly Walker's just as crazy, but it's a lot more polished than this. Do you want to um, do? Do you want to do Walker for a for a stream like in the next couple of weeks? Like I, I haven't seen it, and there's that interview where he's talking about it, and now I'm like super curious. Yeah, uh, what? Yeah, Walker's great. We should do Sid and Nancy. I Alex, mm. personally came to my uh, extremely humble apartment 
which was just up the hill from the Whiskey A Go Go off Sunset Boulevard in 1984. He was as large as the roof of the room, this very large young British guy with not particularly great British manners or anything. <laughs> and uh, he explained to me uh, uh, about the film he was my, making. And he said, I want you to do a song for me, do what you want. And uh, at the time I'd had a hiccup in my career due to my wild lifestyle. I was well, uh, in a row. <laughs> sort of on the ropes and uh, was not making much money, was not on a major, was needed uh, some breathing space. And I was living in an unfurnished efficiency apartment in uh, Hollywood with uh, a Japanese girl who couldn't speak English and a futon and a Stratocaster guitar. So it I've done a lot of this kind of work since, and it's very, very rare that for something as finance intensive as a film that anyone will give you a carte blanche opportunity like that. It was like a gift from God to express myself. It was just wonderful. I don't know why I don't know why Iggy Pop was uh, dressed like Fabio, but <laughs> he's he's got like the weirdest swag whenever he's hanging out in his back garden. Yeah, uh, I, I just love it because he's like you know like oh is this is this my bathrobe or my wife or girlfriend's or um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He'll just put it on and, and just Iggy like walk Pop, around. Did you, did you do too much uh, acid in the sixties? You, you did, did too, too much, much hair everything. when. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the uh, story where, where um, he, he just uh, was watching the monkeys on mescaline and he's like, <laughs> we need a clubhouse. So he just starts digging in like this burnt out section of Detroit and it's a building a clubhouse. And he like did that for 12 hours straight. He was in uh, he was in pretty much every, I mean like the early Jim Jarmusch movies. Hmm. Mm. And uh, my, my dad like was, knew Jim Jarmusch somehow never really explained like had to do with architecture going to see his house that he had designed or his apartment that he had designed in the in the city and like the the 70s or something so but we always had like this weird we always like like I had a dead man poster in my room like long before I had even seen that movie because my dad was like oh don't worry like here here's a here's a movie poster for you like movies like he he had this Jim Jarmusch like that's a guy I met uh <laughs> swag whenever he watched one of those movies but yeah, he was in um, coffee, and, coffee cigarettes. and cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he looked. I mean, like, but that's exactly. He looks very. The streams have crossed. <laughs> um, the, the the thing about the stilted dialogue, by the way, in in Repo Man is, last night I was hanging out with one of my friends, and she had never seen the room, so we like watched the rest of the room, and after like I rewatched Repo Man today, and like the dialogue is stilted in the same way that like. It's kind of funny that, like, obviously it's written that way purposely, but, like, in Tommy Wiseau's brain, like, I feel like that's the way the dialogue comes out. So there's something really funny about watching it be like, by the way, <laughs> like, imagining, like, imagining Harry Dean Stanton played by Tommy Wiseau. Oh, my God. Oh, hi, Otto. <laughs> I can see Harry Dean Stanton just kicking his ass, like, just telling, you know, you're not going to tell me how to act. 
Well, that, that's what he did wow. in this movie, actually, because uh, he got in fights with Alex Cox. Uh, he 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 couldn't uh, he couldn't stand how the movie was co uh, coming together, and, and would get in fights and almost quit several times. Uh, so uh, fortunately, he stuck around and made such a classic. But but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but then you listen not, to an interview. You listen to uh, so I I gotta I gotta watch this after the stream, but it was like twenty two minutes, and I found it like at the last minute, so I didn't have a chance to watch it. There's an interview where he's talking to an interviewer about Repo Man, and his di like his his literal like like organic conversation sounds the same. They're like asking him like like if he wanted to ever direct a movie, and he's like direct, direct, and he's like I worked with like uh, he's talking about like he worked with Scorsese, and he worked with uh, with Francis Ford Coppola. But he was like saying it in such a disjointed way that I was like, this sounds like Repo Man dialogue. Like it's weird that <laughs> this is how you talk as a normal person. Because I, the first movie I ever saw him in was, uh, was uh, Pretty in Pink. Hmm. Oh, not the yeah. Avengers. No. <laughs> yeah. That so like, but I always think of him like when I see him as uh, as Molly Ringwald's dad, living in Chicago. Uh -huh. <laughs> Terminal, Illinois. Um, I also wanted. I, I also wanted to ask, like, uh, in terms of uh, seeing the in, in, portraying the, the the punk culture, I feel like uh, there was equal parts kind of parody of it and like kind of making not just making fun of it in like uh, a kind of way that's like just you know ripping on it uh, as a person who you know you know identifies with it but but also almost like showing uh, Emilio's character arc as almost like a rite of passage that mm -hmm. he used to be a punk and he's like no longer a punk and and, and he's becoming something else uh, maybe he's becoming the repo man and that's basically what the transition is like that you be uh, from being a punk you become a Repo man. So I don't want to be a punk no more. What you gonna be a skinhead? No, I'm gonna be a rude boy like my dad. He's moved on from his greaser look in the outsiders. That's that's punk right there with Amelia. More more than identifying with it, I think Alex Cox is probably like the the premier punk director at the time. At some point, like. He had done like a bunch of projects. He did the thing with the Pogues. He did obviously the Sid and Nancy thing, like one before that. Like he he kind of was the most. Um, it's interesting to see somebody kind of parodying their own genre because it's a genre mm. that I like. How many directors? And I mean, I don't know this like the the like the number, but I'm saying like how many directors were doing this kind of specific um, like punk documentary. And, and he also did this as a comic book. Uh, you know, before the, there was actually a script. He had a comic that he drew, and uh, it got shown around, and Michael Nesmith saw it. And this was uh, uh, how, how Michael Nesmith brought it into his production company. Um, I'm I'm gonna jump into this. Uh, this is this is the interview that I sent you guys a couple of days ago, where he kind of talks about his whole career. But it's uh, I didn't see this. Oh, I sent it to that to that to that group message. But oh. it's funny he's wearing that. It's funny he's wearing that hat and. He's like a British guy, but anyway. Um, so this is this is like they're talking about like his his career. Obviously, started with all right. So I guess Repo Man was first, but like he ended up becoming like the premier, um, the premier like because uh, this is where he got famous. I know that, but like he, he became like kind of the 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 premier punk director. And I mean, it's funny because I don't think necessarily. I mean, I think punk can kind of be a lot of different things because it's kind of, it's just like the rejection of authority doesn't necessarily have to be a left-wing rejection of authority mm -hmm. or a populist rejection uh -huh. of authority. It could be just a restructuring of existing authority. So like this movie very much ties into that. 
um, and, and critiques it when it's kind of like, first he's like, oh, I don't really like Repo Men. Fuck Repo Men. They repossess people's uh, stuff. And then he's like, oh, I kind of need 25 bucks. So I guess yeah. I'll become a Repo Man. Like, so it's, it's this like, I don't know, like the, the rejection of authority. And I think this is true, honestly, with global protest movements a lot. Because um, when when uh, Hong Kong erupted in protest, and there was like, you know, there was, there was a lot of people that were protesting there about lack of democracy, but also we were funding like, a, like a, oh, let's try to overthrow the Chinese government protests in Hong Kong. So it's like that, that rejection of authority could take a direction in both, you know what I mean, in both directions. I mean, didn't we fund like, uh, Castro? The, the the kind of uh, the trailer itself kind of gives it away uh, where it says it's the ultimate repossession um, and and it's kind of a, an interesting way to look at it because what they end up doing finally is that they do repossess the car um, and and except this time they get to fly it so it gets me thinking about like so what's the kind of flying and like that's why I kind of made the connection to you know what would what would be like the cult classic of the 90s. Um, it to even be a mainstream hit, which is Top Gun, um, that like, you know, it kind of inc introduced a whole kind of romanticism for like airstrikes and kind of pilot fighting um, from uh, from planes and all of that. So uh, I kind of wonder. Uh, yeah. Otto was saying, was calling people ace long before Top Gun was. <laughs> the right. He was like, he was like, yeah, let's do this ace or something. <laughs> 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 I feel like I feel like Emilio Estevez in this movie uh, was literally every other Tom Cruise character in the '80s. Like every Tom yeah. Cruise character in the '80s was literally this person who uh, who had no self and uh, had just like a one purpose kind of like I I do this thing and this is all I am. Yeah. It's like Popeye the Sailor Man kind of uh, mm -hmm. you know one note uh, character, um, and that's why it's kind of fascinating to see what that character's interpretation of becoming a repo repo man would be because what what would that character find to be like a sort of culmination of their identity you know like is is, is does he care so much about anything like so what does he what does he really care about and and i and i wonder because i don't know if that was really clear in the moment where they i mean so so to say achieve the the, the final like liberation or uh, emancipatory kind of thing that happens uh, which I would not reveal the the, the nature of it, but um, when I mean, it happens, you can, you can reveal the nature of it. Like, <laughs> I don't think. Like I mean, they, they they drive the car and instead of driving, it flies right, and it's the it's yeah. the alien car. And so so what happens? What is that? And I and I feel like that flight can um, immediately like kind of it, that that discussion could basically unearth the the politics of this movie itself because uh, depending upon how you see that flight, it becomes a different interpretation. I feel like. Let's well, uh, let's 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 watch let's watch that last scene. Um, I think and then we right can now, yell and and uh, 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 about great whatsits and and whatnot. Yeah, because um, I, I want to keep this to like an hour and a half tonight. I feel like we've been going really long with these. So um, yeah, we're gonna go longer than the movie. Yeah. So I, I feel like I feel like maybe we should keep this an hour and a half tonight and uh, just watch this last scene because I think it's it, it's great and uh, yeah. Holy shit, shit. 
<laughs> Tell that girl to shut up. <laughs> I'm a loner, daddy. A rebel. So much about that scene wow. that's 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 amazing, but also, I reconciling it with everything prior is difficult because that car kills people the rest of the movie. Like, <laughs> and it's kill it's actually hurting people then. But Emilio Estevez is chosen not just by uh, uh, mechanic dude, but also by the car. I think. And I'm not and like I'm, I was actually. What does that mean? I actually don't know what it means that the car chooses Estevez as the passenger. I I don't I don't. Yeah, he's This is this is anything that they're commenting out. But it's really funny that we've had these a lot of like one of the most controversial interleft issues is nuclear energy. Like whether mm -hmm. or not like 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 that kind like that kind of energy, uh, which, which doesn't leave as much of a, of a carbon footprint, obviously, but also like a, a leak in, a, in, 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 in any kind of tower can totally decimate a place. So there's been that debate going on for like, you know, like decades, like, is that an energy source that we kind of want as a transition, transitory one? And it's funny when uh, Harry Dean Stanton's sitting in the car and he's clearly, he's clearly like fading away from being like having atomic energy all over him. And like, literally like like dying of some kind of cancer or whatever the, the fuck it, you know what I mean like his, his <laughs> end comes from and he's he's like say there he's like oh that's all like no, like that's not true you can have like a hundred uh a hundred like MRIs or whatever like x-rays a, a day or a day and you would still be fine and clearly that's not true but it's kind of a funny debate when it's like oh fuck like this car is fucking radioactive and he's like dodge nah, fine and he's clearly dying and after watching like so many different intra-left <laughs> debates on that I'm like Pretty, I don't know. I found it funny because it like, kills uh, me. Because it's the same thing. I mean, uh, yeah. Dog on fire and saying this is fine. Yeah, but but it's also <laughs> it's also the though. fact that like I mean it, it really it's been a debate for decades among environmentalists like whether because you know Chernobyl Chernobyl happens and like right like that kind of thing happens 
you know, more than it should. But at the same time, it's something that doesn't um, pollute the environment the same way. And at the same time, it's something that ends up, uh, it, it can literally just destroy a like an entire city or like a, a small country. If it like, you know, if you drop a fucking bomb on, on them, like, so it's or like, a tidal it's, wave. I was in Korea when Fukushima happened. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so it's like it's like terrifying, but it's also like, you know, there's a scientific consensus, I guess, that's a little bit different. It's like, oh, this could be this could actually like save us in, in the meantime while we're waiting for these other technologies to catch up. But then at the same time, like you look at Fukushima or Chernobyl and you're like, this could also wipe out like an entire city of people if it fucks up. Uh, which is so at a more at a more fundamental level, you're looking at power then, basically, uh, more than just like any form of power or any form of like this this type of thing is good or bad. It's just like as essentially evaluating whether you get to have this much power or not. And then like I mean, what better way to encapsulate that like than by showing flight, right? Like a human being able to fly is like the it's like say the, the definition of a superpower, and like a flying car is like doing that job. But like at the end of the day, uh, I think I, I come back to what Vaughn said, which is uh, the fact that the car is a killing machine. So if you were to view it that way, then you're essentially equating the power of something to the power of a killing machine, mm. uh, which is basically it has done nothing else but that. And so uh, to think that it can actually do anything else, uh, it kind of, you know, it's, it's like we're, we're kind of rehashing these uh as familiar territories of like looking at uh, the U.S. as a force of good, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if if it has never done anything but destruction before, can you ultimately see it as a force of good? And mm -hmm. like Emilio and uh, the, his friend seem to, you know, think so. Especially the friend because he's actually the most, you know, the trippiest character uh, in the whole movie. And like for somebody like that to reconcile, like what does he say? It's a very famous, uh, not famous, but like a very catchy line: the lattice of something. That he says, um, lattice of coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, oh yeah, that he, that he yeah. says, yeah. And by he's talking way, like, by the way, fuck that character because his last <laughs> name was Miller, and he's like, oh, I don't drive, and like, I'm literally learning to drive now because I had, you know, I was in a car accident when I was like younger oh, when I wasn't learning to drive. But no, but it's like, like, like my friend was a car, like, but I was in the car, and like, it, it really like gave me like permanent problems. But like, he's like, I don't drive, man, or whatever. He's like, you don't drive. And, like all my friends, every time I say it, they're like, you don't drive. And I'm like. Really? Yeah. Really doesn't dry. Like, <laughs> I never really looked at an environmental angle on this, but like it is, it does show that, uh, you know, Howard, um, you know, the American dream is killing us. Like the fact that, that the fact that we want to be, you know, atomized, every family or every individual has a car instead of having a public transit system, you know, Harry Dean Stanton, I think, you know, he's a good narrator for that, you know, being the, the, the lone wolf on the road. And at the same time, like we were saying, like everyone owning a car is killing us mm -hmm. in many right. ways, like, you know, literally in some ways and also over time environmentally. So I think that, I mean, that's a layer until this conversation I didn't even think of. Yeah. I mean, I think it's nuclear, like nuclear as a, as a, as a, um, as a concept. Nuclear. Like, nuclear. nuclear. All right. I say, I, I say it weirdly. Okay. But it's like, but it really is the, the inc most incredible uh, double-edged sword that we've ever created. I think, I, I mean, at least if you're somebody who's um, like for that type of energy and you're someone that cares about the environment and you think that, you know, um, cause we we're, like solar hasn't caught up with us and it hadn't in the eighties and solar was very much like something like, well, it got to the point in the seventies where uh, Jimmy Carter had put solar panels. Yeah. On 
like, like and this a, was like three years after Reagan took him down. Yeah. <laughs> so like, but so it, it's something that like could be something that like literally saves us, according to the people that are like its disciples, I guess. But it's also a thing that's managed to like level an entire city, like or like you know what I mean? Like both both if it fucks up and like the fact that like you know we have bombs that we make out of it. So it's something that really is like. One of the few things that we have, which is the purest form of uh, of power dynamics, I guess, like, like, is it going to be used for good or is it going to be used for bad? There's very few things that can level an entire fucking city mm-hmm. uh, at the end of that conversation. <laughs> what was up with, with Emilio's hair at, at that end scene, though? He, he really is coming from that, like, greaser look at the outsiders. That was his punk look, if, to be honest, uh, in the outsiders. That, that greaser, you know, uh, leather jacket look, and then he from going from that, that movie, yeah. yeah, very much. Uh, like going from that movie to this kind of like, uh, I guess you'd say like kind of crew cut, like flannel wearing businessman, or whatever you want to call it. Well, I think I think both Emilio and the car are uh, going through like evolutions in, in mm-hmm. the story. It's it's almost like um, they're like Pokemon. And the car reached its final form where it becomes like a flutter car or something, um, you know, where, where, where it's finally safe. But it's, it's, it was in its middle volatile form where, where, you know, it can do great damage to both the, 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 uh, um, the pokey controller guy, person, trainer, 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 that's it. Is it, is it finally <laughs> safe, though? Because I, the, the, last, the last moment where his eyes are literally glowing with, like, uh, with, 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 like, green energy kind of was something right. that kind of fucked me up because like it's like he was literally, <laughs> he's literally radioactive at that point like it's not it doesn't seem like he's safe in that situation it seems like he's taking a chance which when when he was uh you know when he decides to become a reaperman in the first place like he's taking a chance um like with, with a very dangerous what turns out to be a very dangerous job which he thinks is obviously a, an authoritarian job because you're literally just taking people's property but like and Harry Dean Stanton in the, you know, the best, I guess, uh, not best, but the most uh, abhorrent libertarian terms is like, I don't harm people's property. And it's like, yeah, like you harm people before you harm their property. I get that. <laughs> but like, you know, so it, it kind of feels like he's kind of willing to take that leap as if it, if it means killing himself, which is an evolution, I guess, because uh, at one point when they whip out the guns, he's kind of freaking out about the fact that there's guns involved, which is kind of funny because his like best friend or whatever later is like I kill people man or whatever and like I see you working around for that part of it. Well, I mean it is it is interesting how many people uh um like his punk period is actually hard to tell how sincere it is too, but it is it is also to to compare the two tracks, the punks randomly kill people as well and it's random like it's if what if you're in the liquor store at the wrong time and they're in a bad mood, like yeah. half of everyone in the room dies, including half of them. They're so, like they're they're, cr- they're they're cruel to the point of being sociopathic. Like right, the like, bad punks. It was interesting. Out of control. Really bad punks. Mm-hmm. They were part of this uh, this concept called the Quincy punks. That like in the eighties, this move this show called Quincy Me uh, or MD, I think. Um, it was uh, a show. What is it? There's a big difference. It's Emmy. It's Emmy. You got to. Well, they had like you know they had one episode where they just hired a bunch of 
of punk rockers and it was like a moral panic episode where it was like these punk rockers they were almost like trauma film like that level of evil just in like comical and or like a movie suburbia even yeah, i was about to bring up suburbia that's another one so you have like you know that kind of you know that the what was part of kind of what mainstream culture looked at punks and then you had emilio and kind of the more i guess moderate punks in the film um so I, yeah I, I wanted i wanted to end on an alex cox uh i, I mean you could go but i so i want to i want to kind of set this up before we um end this i wanted to end on a so this i i'm, I'm gonna put up this uh interview which happened during COVID, I guess. So it was within the last year of uh, Alex Cox looking back at all of this and kind of um, talking about like where his politics are now, which is at an, at an interesting point. Um, but but anyway, uh, just uh, you can finish what you were saying, Barn. I just uh, I wanted to put that up. Well, I was just I was just interested in how like this movie doesn't spare anybody. Like the the girlfriend is also a, like she tortures him to get information about the car um and they seem like they're nice liberals for a second who are also involved in anti-conspiracy or conspiratorial i guess also at in the 80s i'm i'm I've, like conspiracy theories did not explicitly have the right wing valiance that they have now in the but, 2000s either or the 90s or right literally a few years ago <laughs> so or even so, right now <laughs> right but they're shown as also they don't seem sociopathic they seem to care about society but they actually kind of don't and all she really wants to have is access to the car and so no there, there's not any like cox doesn't give you anyone to glom onto as a good character to like to to be to to be on side within the society at all in this movie. I, but I also think I mean I I kind of drew a corollary between this movie a lot of times in Clockwork Orange, which is mm -hmm. you know like a, a British um, kind of at the start of of the you know this kind of dystopic uh, mod skinhead like you know uh, whatever like like street gang almost like 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 fights on on, on the streets in in the UK. And there's kind of like a, a corollary between like the the liberal like the the liberals in Clockwork Orange turn out to literally be trying to kill Alex, like you know what I mean? Like the, it's mm -hmm. the it's the older professor guy that's like more reactionary I think than like almost like the conservative politicians. He just wants to use his death and drive him to the point of committing suicide. So there's kind of a corollary with you know you you expect in that movie that that the uh, older liberal professor seems very humanistic. Like, I'm not even going to say he seems, like, empathetic. He seems very humanistic. And then all of a sudden, you know, Alex is kidnapped and jumps out of that window. Spoiler alert to Clockwork Orange. I hope people have seen it after having 50 years to see it. But, like, you know, like, it's, it's like, at, the, at that point where it's, you know, it seems like this movie is in conversation with a lot of different um, movies that, that led up to it. And that really do li like lead up to the punk movement, I think, because I think Clockwork Orange, more than anything else in the '60s, leads up to that uh, a lot of those concepts. Um, but I, so I so I thought this was interesting. This Alex Cox with this mini glowing Malibu, but uh, I guess the, this I think the author is pretty liberal, and he is uh, not 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 liberal maybe, but he's nihilistic for sure. So during the uh, current events of such bleak times with Trump's ego, it's quite a coincidental par parallel of a delusion leader going forward in the name of democracy. Would you ever have expected such a parallel? And he's talking about, I think, Walker when he says this, but he's like pushing for uh, health care in the United States to be more adequate. Like he's, he's saying, like, 
that it isn't Trump's fault the U.S. has a, an adequate third world for profit healthcare system. Um, when he tries to do something sensible, move the U.S. occupation forces from Afghanistan, he's thwarted by the Democrats. I'm not a victim of Trump derangement syndrome. Democrats and Republicans are equally bad. And he, he like continues on with like all of these interesting, uh, extremely like nihilistic uh, comments, I guess, about you know the, the two parties in the United States and um, and and the concept of nuclear war. So one of this is uh, with nuclear war being a prevalent theme in Repo Man, even appears as a newspaper in Straight to Hell. What was it like to meet the creator of the neutron bomb, who was a fan of Repo Man, apparently, which is, I guess makes sense if he's literally his character from that. Because he was insane. He received a medal from the Pope for his services to world peace. He showed me the medal. So the Pope was insane too. Obama committed uh, $1.2 trillion to U.S. nuclear weapons upgrades, received the Nobel Prize, insane also. Um, I don't know. So it's it's like he's, he's an interesting like populist populist figure, I'd say, you know, like anti-authoritarian, um, very much, very much like against authority, which is kind of what the punk movement is. It's interesting, though, the punk movement could go either way, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, it. So he's kind of made a name for himself after this as like the number one punk director that could possibly exist. And, uh, you know, I, mean, I don't think I need to read about him talking about COVID or whatever, but like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting time to have had that um, to have this conversation. I do like uh, how can actors act without being to shout, weep, fight, and hug each other? Only way of a safe vaccine. Can we get back into our groove? Which at least you know, at least he's saying yeah, vaccine. Yeah, <laughs> but vaccine from uh, X is uh, a little off the way off the farm right now. <laughs> I, I think that, but I, I think that there, um, and I've talked about this a lot in different contexts, but like uh, in the 80s and 90s, especially in filmmaking, but like in, in culture in general, I think everything takes kind of an anti-corporate bend, an anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. or authority bend, but doesn't necessarily find a way to fight against it. Like it doesn't ever really provide a solution where it's like, here's the solution for how we get out of this. It's just like, all right, well, there's somebody like higher on you in a, in a societal hierarchy. Fuck them. Like, that's why there are so many songs in the 80s and, and early 90s about like, they're like, oh, me and my parents just don't see eye to eye. Because that's like the most, uh, you know, for, for people that are living a privileged lifestyle, like the most authoritarian force they could think of, I feel like, is their like parents. You know what I mean? Like, like Will Smith being like, parents just don't understand. Like, my mm-hmm. favorite one's actually on the soundtrack. And so, but, but so they, they never really provide a solution besides fuck authority as, as a as a general concept and i think that's interesting because like very much as we're in this neoliberalized state uh you know like anti-authority messages can be subverted just as quickly as uh pro-authority ones like you know like you could do an establishment shakeup, which is what trump basically was like it was a shake-up to at least in people's minds like they were voting for him like a shake-up to the establishment as a concept that just put the same people from like reagan's administration back into the government so the, the the kind of framework in which this uh, filmmaker is especially talking about, I think, uh, is from what it seems like a libertarian kind of individualistic uh, person who takes care of like a group, of, like as a sort of leader, a sort of libertarian leader, it seems like, because uh, if you scroll up, like there's a place where he uh, speaks about how what his advice is to young filmmakers or something like that. Uh, scroll down a little bit, sorry. Uh, th- this answer, like what hardships should be under the control of, what hardships under the control of film production companies did you face that aspiring filmmakers should be cautious of? 
Um, well, I, don't, I don't think he was talking about a libertarian leader. He made so no, not. I, I kind of uh, no. I'm the reason I'm I'm, I'm getting to that yeah. is because I feel like the 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 politics of filmmaking, especially because as you pointed out, uh, how can you really like be opposed to uh, have an anti-capitalist or an anti-authoritarian point of uh, anti-authority even point of view uh, while you're being a, a you know a Hollywood filmmaker who is totally dependent on the money that these yeah. people are going to give you to make these movies in the first place, right? So the the kind of way that I feel like filmmakers I have I have seen in history kind of overcome this obstacle is to kind of trick like have this sleight of hand where they'll uh, do a movie that kind of can play both ways and and can trick uh, like even even something like Spartacus comes to mind like it's starting right from there um, and I feel like this this filmmaker is definitely like dealing with something like that uh, but at the same time it also has its limitations right because uh, at the end of the day, he is admitting to that. I think uh, I was a I was never able to raise money there again and stuff like that. So it does seem like well, uh, he, it's a waning he was waning form of interest. He was saying that he uh, ended up doing the punk stuff because he couldn't like like Hollywood studios weren't helping him. So he was kind of I think financing on his own. I think that's a more film filmmaker specific. I mean, I get the point you're making, and I agree on a lot of like on other levels. But I think in this case, he's kind of like, oh well. I was fortunate the fact that, like I was making controversial movies and then wasn't getting uh, funding anymore from it. But I, I think that uh, I don't to, know. To answer to answer your question, I mean, like I don't know if you asked this as a question, but like the the way that you framed it, uh, which is that like a filmmaker doesn't really have the wherewithal to really like even oppose the machine because they're ultimately dependent on the machine to fund them. Um, and I feel like uh, the answer to this is like this filmmaker and like a bunch of filmmakers like that i mean even even somebody like steven soderbergh or uh even so, any any of any of the people who made independent movies post like the 90s even like quentin tarantino uh all of these guys like come to mind who uh i think operated on the same kevin smith also uh comes to mind like who operated in the same framework like you know you, smith, you, there's, you, there's nothing anti-authority about anything kevin smith has made i mean true just just in the framework of like you know i i'm gonna get a bunch of money and we're gonna make a movie out of it, and I'll make the budget so small that, like, you know, we'll we'll be able to make a good movie, etc. But that's the most that we can ask for because the fact that we get this thing made is a big deal unto itself. I feel like uh, whatever politics we get into it is the most that we can ask for because this movie itself will not be made otherwise, or something like that. I mean, I I I, I guess uh, I feel like something like Sorry to Bother You, not not necessarily that it did anything to our culture, but like like movies like that can be made now parasite i mean not here but like you know what i mean like there's like in other countries like class class conscious movies can be made like i i think that i i don't think necessarily that's doing anything to our society as a whole but i think we are at a time when people are starting to realize that there is more than just like wall thrashing like i, I think that there's like a, a very populist wall thrashing type of movie that comes out of even like verhoven stuff uh as prescient as some of his movies are in in the 80s and 90s where it's like, listen, like we don't like authority, we don't like this this privatization, we don't like uh, a co like corporate like corporate ideas, but like there's nothing really past that that we can really say. Like we're kind of just pointing it out, like we're holding a mirror to it, which is what culture does best. I mean, when it's like at its most countercultural, it just holds a mirror to something and says, like, look at look at what's going on. But I also think like we were talking about this with Paths of Glory, like um, like an anti-war movie at this point needs to literally have them leaving the war. Like there needs to be something at the other end of it. And I feel like a lot of times in uh, dystopic, like dystopic eighties and nineties stuff, 
here, especially like sci-fi, like it is, it's like, oh, this sucks. Like here, here's what this country could turn into, but there's never really like a, and here's what, like, here's how we get out of it. Like, it's kind of just like, look at this mirror society, like, fuck this, like, fuck all these power structures, which I think in the punk thing really is how people become like right wing or libertarian punks is that they're like, you know what it's, and, and you're seeing it right now too. Like with, I mean, and, and as much as we started out with the show talking about how we like it, like even like Glenn Greenwald, like this kind of desire to uh, restructure the, the power structure and anything that, that breaks that um, kind of is a good thing, which it's not, but like, there's this kind of idea that just the restructuring of the establishment is going to be enough. Like, I, I, I don't really strongly believe in generational politics, but I actually do think that the fall of the Soviet Union and Reaganism affects a lot of these people. And it is not a mistake that Green Greenwald is actually of a similar generation as to when this movie would have been uh, viewable and released. Um, I, I've been following Greenwald. I've been following Greenwald since I was a right winger almost 20 years ago. So like this actually isn't new for him. This is a long trajectory with him. And that's well, he's fine. Part of, he's actually, part of the Iraq War, right? I mean, at, at one point, like he, yeah, uh, and they, but he, he he turned against it early. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, and he's always been great on 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 international reporting, but there was a sense. I think if you tried to look to the Soviet Union in the eighties as a way out, no one, even outside of the West, would have taken you that seriously. No, the, and, the, the, even people in Russia wouldn't have taken you right. Seriously. Yeah. And and if you tried to pivot to what I to the CCP at the time, also wouldn't have taken you seriously because that's the moment of liberalization. I mean, so it really did probably seem like I mean, you want to talk about capitalist realism, it probably really did seem like there was not any real alternative to any of this. And, um, and getting into the 90s, like it gets worse because you know, we, we have the, the end of the end of history idea, which I think really did permeate more of culture than like we give it credit for. I mean, a lot of people bring that, you know, that, that essay up, but like, it's funny that you turned to a Bernie bro in like the 2020s and like admitted <laughs> that like, it wasn't the end of history, but like, you know, but like that kind of idea that like everything that had happened had already kind of happened, you know, the Soviet union fell. And that's like, that was the big thing that was going to be like, you know, like, like, like one type of society won out, the other type of society fell. And like, at, at this point we're just kind of, uh, which is back to the PMC thing, I guess, managing conflict. Like these these mm -hmm. national conflicts that come up between countries, like we're just kind of managing them at this point. Like, you know what I mean? Like, or like something like Bosnia happens and like we, we bring troops in there and like there's a dictator that's like everybody in, in the moment can agree like, oh, like this person's evil. Okay, well, we're gonna topple them. Like it, it becomes this easy uh, good and evil struggle. So I, I think that I'm not, I'm not knocking that idea. I'm just saying that I think that it's permeated things um, to a point where no, it's really hard to find any movie from this period that doesn't just hold Agreed. a mirror to society and say like mm. consumerism is bad. Uh, you know, corporate interests are taking control of everything. That's bad. Like look at this mirror. And I was thinking about this when I was talking to Catherine Lou earlier today, because um, it, like we were watching, I watched two movies that were like Chinese uh, movies, uh, Wrath of Silence for our conversation. And I watched um, um, a touch of sin, which mm. were both, extremely class conscious movies in a very different way than anything that we have here because they have an understanding that things were at one point collectively owned and we don't have that it's not like we're like oh wow like the workers co-op got overthrown by a corporation how can we fight back against that it's like oh wow a small business got overthrown by a corporation how can we fight back against that but at the same republicans are very much and the conservatives and whatever reactionary capitalists exist are very much in line with the fact that like 
the, the interest of small business on a small scale is very much their interest. Mm -hmm. It's not fashionable to say so anymore. So like you ha kind of have like this, wow, corporations are really like taking over everything that sucks here. And, and, but like overturning the corporation and then another like more, let's say like quote unquote ethical corporation takes over is not a solution to that. And nobody's really, because I think, you know, the Soviet Union had been toppled and, and, and it clearly wasn't an option at that point. Like, and neoliberalism was everywhere. It seemed inevitable, even in places that had like thriving life traditions for a long time. It, like it came, like I was thought I was doing, uh, I was talking about France uh, the other day and um, how, how, like, even when, even when France had socialist leaders, like they were still imperialist, like it was socialist imperialism. You know what I mean? Like in France, at certain times with uh, Mitterrand, like it, 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 number one, he was the one that fucking had Thomas Sankara killed. And number two, like there was that, the, he, there was the turn to austerity that happened in his administration because- I was about to say neoliberalism so, happened with a deal with the communist party. I mean, yeah, like that's- Yeah. You know. <laughs> and, 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 and it becomes, this under, and the communist party was like toppled there uh, mm -hmm. during that because his, his coalition fell apart because it just seems so inevitable at this point that he dropped his own uh, like he he voluntarily dropped his own agenda, like so it's very much being being put into this and the idea that like you know all of these uh, all of these things have kind of been toppled and this is the only way forward and like the only the only I guess criticism is like oh well look at these corporations taking over everything. If I think if you're going to find movies that actually posit uh, something other than capital, you have to watch genre movies. And this is kind of a genre movie, but you're going to find it in sci-fi and fantasy movies. You're not going to find it in um in in standard even artistic films and i think the, i think it's obvious the reason why because like in genre movies there's plausible deniability and it isn't considered serious yeah um you know like that's why is this. probably more radical than parasite even i mean like uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, we talked about this uh during during annie's birthday stream this uh, exactly syncs up like and, and this goes for this movie, but like not exactly. The only way you could really criticize things was making it so absurdist that like the only satirical way you could really do these because it really was this one conception that like things were this way now. Like the only way you could really criticize things, people didn't want to hear it after you know decades of like uh, like even even some like parallax views where it was like you know like like we we didn't trust our government anymore. People didn't really want that. So the only way to really criticize something and put light to it during the Reagan years was like to make it so absurdist that it became like, like, like that you, you were looking through a fictional lens, which this movie does too. But like, I mean, Robocop is a great corollary of that. Like it, that movie, if you look at it now, is like, holy shit, Verhoeven, well, Verhoeven, I guess, claims that he wasn't, he didn't really know that much about US politics at the time because he had just come from, uh, you know, he, he was Dutch. He had just come over to the United States like two years before that. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that because I think that movie is too well made for him not to know what's going on. So I think that's bullshit. But, uh, I, you know, it's but it's like it's like the fact that like it needs to be something sci-fi and absurdist to even criticize like the dystopic nature of what's happening around you. Um, in that moment, so I, I don't. I'm not saying that I blame those filmmakers. It's just interesting that now, I mean, with something like Sorry to Bother You, like you start to see uh, a return to this like 40s and 50s style pro labor, um, like like a like a pro labor like alternative in some senses to the consensus that we've developed in the last 30 years, which still was not far enough, but like, it, at least it's a return to that type of filmmaking. It, it's gonna be interesting if we continue to see that um, in, in, in the near future, or 
if we're more likely to see a thousand more black Klansmen. I think um, we're I think we're likely to see both. Like we're likely to see more Sorry to Bother You movies made uh, like by you know in in an indie setting. We're also likely to see far more black Klansmen movies. Like you know what I mean? Like like that kind of. Uh, woke neoliberal uh thing because look at this fucking spike lee's um spike lee just did that stupid bitcoin uh, uh -huh. ad like I, spike lee's not going anywhere like and his conception of like even like nationalism is like uh is 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 a very like uh one that's like a black capitalist conception of of of, of nationalism like he's not uh the only thing he would be changing is the color of the people who go up that ladder i think yeah. um yeah. And it, 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 it feels like uh, through globalization, uh, the United States was at least like the neoliberal aspect of uh, the neoliberal wing of the United States culture and politics at least seemed to be interested in like, you know, cultures and countries around the world. But now with like, I feel like uh, a lot of trade deficits and, and things like that, like especially I don't know if you if you, if you saw this uh, kind of. I don't know if it, if it was like a kind of map that showed uh, China gaining in trade percentages and stuff like that. Uh, I feel like it, the, the reaction to that is going to be a version of, uh, you know, the, the kind of dropping bombs with the pride flag and the Black Lives Matter logo uh, yeah. type stuff. Um, and, and that becoming a form of nationalism unto itself. So I am like definitely more pessimistic on that front because uh, I'm, okay. I, I feel like we're likely going to see more Shonda Rhimes than Spike Lee even. Uh, so, and that's definitely more like, you know, uh, dis, like, what do you say, disorienting than, um, you know, optimistic. We're going to see a black, uh, a black 24 reboot where it's, where it's all just, uh, uh like, like black, In the sage uh, of reboots. Like, we're going to say just like all ages, like be the shadow of Arabs. It was like, oh fuck. Like, <laughs> did we already get a black 24 reboot though? Yeah, I think I, we I, did. I, see, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll make them right wingers, but it'll be for 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 uh, liberal capitalists. I don't know. Um, it, it's going to be interesting. I think I, I have I my cynicism came from you know we had a year with very little film, but the films that were made were all indie and kind of interesting. But um, one of the ones that was supposedly class consciousness is Amazon propaganda. Yeah. So it's it's hard for me to feel good about eat like about where this is going because it's 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 being recuperated relatively quickly it's yeah. weird it's the conversation that i had about film this morning and this conversation are literally like syncing up in that way because <laughs> we're talking about nomadland and, and <laughs> the difference between nomadland and like even like dude it's, it's kind of crazy like i mean it's not crazy in the fact that like you know i mean the maoist conception of uh the Maoist conception of the working class obviously glorified it to an, an you know an outrageous level at some points. But like uh, the 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 interesting thing about like you know uh, Chinese filmmakers and Chinese artists understanding intrinsically that like privatization is happening in China and has been for decades, and like understanding like a, a far more class conscious reading of um, of what that leads to at the very least than what we had like. Watching uh watching that movie A Touch of Sin was fucking insane. Literally every single like it was just a bunch of disjointed uh scenes that had come from actual Chinese newspapers where privatization and economic deprivation led to extreme violence. Like uh, throughout that movie, literally like literally I felt like the first uh I don't know, I think I think everyone should watch that movie now that I've watched it. I'm like a I'm like a converted uh converted about no I'm not, but <laughs> no, but like I like I was very like I was very drawn into the fact that the first 
story in this is that a mine had been privatized and there's like um there's there's a working class miner that's running around that nobody takes seriously when he's saying like the corruption is real here like and everybody does the same thing they do here where it's like like nobody was taking him seriously like his uh his sister or whatever was like oh well you're just jealous that someone else like decided to become a billionaire before you could be able to take that leadership role and like everybody's just not taking him seriously they won't uh they won't send his letter to president xi and this is before the kind of the, there was a harsher crackdown i guess on on filmmaking in china and they won't send his letter anywhere like everyone just so he ends up just grabbing his fucking hunting rifle out of the closet and going and literally with his hunting rifle killing capitalists like he goes first to the guy that's like the bureaucratic uh person like the village like council leader or whatever blows him away the second guy is like or the second person like he just goes around just starts eventually going to the person that owns the mine in this village and just blowing his head off and like he's just sitting in the car like smiling and he's fucking killed a, a capitalist and it's fucking sympathetic as fuck like when this guy's running around screaming like like uh there is no justice and i'm like holy shit like as a leftist in the u.s that has like spent his whole life understanding how privatization works like because you know he had to get pushed over the edge like it's not like he started out as a violent person but like this messaging that like you know that that the understanding that because this is a real like story that had come out in chinese newspapers that i that i read this morning like uh the, they killed 14 different people that were involved in this like privatization thing um and eventually gotten executed by the chinese government like the, the understanding that like this privatization and like corruption it isn't taken seriously by anybody else um like like that that you know it leads to violence because people get so desperate and obviously maybe that's the most extreme version and and i'm, I'm ready to stop after this i just wanted to say like maybe that's the most extreme version but you would like even even in the most like even in the most uh even in booch riley's like crazy uh most crazy uh, uh acid trip by and like let's say he wouldn't have capitalists literally get their head blown off <laughs> That's that's the last thing I wanted to say. Um, anyone have any last thoughts? And then we'll get Kenzo out of here and us out of here and everyone else because I really yeah. Let's start with Kenzo since he's the one who does the balance. Uh, yeah. I just you know thanks for having me on. This was great talking about the film. Um, I don't really have any thoughts beyond you know what I already shared. But yeah, this has been fun. Thanks, Forrest. Yeah. Um. Any anyone else want to say any last? Uh, I I love this movie. I think everyone should watch it. I know that we talked about it, but there's actually you you could spend five, ten, twenty a week talking about all the different things that come up in this movie in any one scene. Um, so I would tell people to check that out. And uh, yeah, it was, um, good. it was a really good movie. And yeah, no, that's why it's it's really hard to like when it's a movie like this like log off because it's like. There's more stuff I want to say, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna close it there. Um, I think this was a, a fun stream. I give it two thumbs up, including one that's fucked up from getting caught in a scooter. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, left is best. Thank you.